0: check 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 um check 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 okay we are check 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 all right we have recording <coughs> Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3 beginning in verse 7. We have a long way to go and a short time to get there as was famously sung years ago. Uh, we have a lot of text this morning so let's read this together and then we will jump right in and seek uh, to gain understanding from this text this morning. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 7. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Nearly four years ago, I was transferred by my employer from a store in the city to a store out in the suburbs just south of here. And in that shopping center in that store is a mattress firm. I think that's the one it is. There's so many of these mattress stores, it's hard to remember which one is which. So nearly every day for the last four years, as I walk into work, I have been exposed to the marketing from mattress stores. And oftentimes when I'm walking into work, it's like three o'clock in the morning or earlier, or when I'm leaving work, it's like 10.30 at night or later, and as I walk out, I see splashed across their windows, get the best sleep you've ever had. Get better rest here. Talk to our sleep experts. Need better rest? Tired of restless nights? Come see us. It's a big promise that they're asking me to believe, and what are they asking me to believe? Well, one They're asking me to trust them with one-third of my life. At least that's the statistic you always hear, that we spend one-third of our life sleeping. I don't think that's true. Um, (laughs) I wish. But they're asking them to trust you with a significant portion of their life. But really what they're saying is you will have a better day. You're not going to toss and turn at night. You're going to have peace if you come in here and you buy one of our mattresses. Because let's face it, have you ever heard anyone say, oh my goodness, I got such good sleep last night, I can't believe it, this is miserable. Have you ever heard anyone say, I wish I didn't rest that well yesterday? Have you ever heard anyone say, I rested too much on my vacation? No. We all want rest. We're all weary from work, from working around the house, from raising our children, from maybe it's... We are are caring for sick and ailing loved ones. All of us want rest. All of us want rest. And these mattress stores are making a big promise. If you just buy this piece of equipment, then you will have rest. This physical need for rest is an outward manifestation. It's one of the ways that we can see a deeper and a greater truth. And it's that spiritually, we need rest as well. Spiritually, we are all weary. Think about it. Our souls are constantly looking for joy. We're constantly looking for that thing that said, this is it. I don't need to move any further. I can lay here forever. Augustine once said many, many years ago that you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our restless hearts find their rest in you our hearts are naturally restless. Our hearts are constantly seeking for that thing that will give them true enjoyment, true joy, true fulfillment. And we know that that true enjoyment, that true fulfillment comes from one place alone, and that is God. God is the one who gives us rest. The, there's a theme across scripture that begins in Genesis where God works and then he rests. And what is God doing on that day? He's saying, I've made everything good and there's nothing else that needs to be done. And that is rest. Now, as Christians and as believers, we need to ask ourselves do we have this rest? Do we have this promise? Can we claim hold of this? Do we have the hundred nights sleep on it or return it if you don't love it guarantee that the mattress store wants to give you? And we can only have that through Christ. To help illustrate this and to help drive home this point that we are called to enter God's rest, that we are called to enter the fulfillment and the joy that God has given us because he has completed the work, the author of Hebrews gives us this next text. So last week, we talked about typology. You remember typology? It's where you take two things and you compare them. You see how those things are alike, and in seeing how they are alike, you see that one is better. We saw that Moses was a type of Christ, Moses was a savior, he was a prophet, he was a priest, he was a king. But what Moses was doing is he was pointing us to the true and the greater prophet, priest, and king. Today, for the first time in Hebrews, the impetus has shifted from Christ slightly, and it's shifted to God's people. It's switched to God's people. Last week, whereas we had a typology between Moses and Christ... Today we'll see typology, and really a typology that gives us a warning and gives us an exhortation between the Old Testament people of God, the people who Moses led out of Egypt, and the church, the New Testament people of God. So we still have typology, but it's shifted from Christ and Moses, and now it's the people who followed Moses and the people who follow Christ. Christ. The author of Hebrews beginning in verse 7 he begins it with this word therefore and whenever you see that word therefore what that's doing is it's connecting you to what was said before it's connecting you to what was said before and what was said just before we are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope so think about to the closing of last week's sermon that we are called to trust in Christ that Christ is the true and the better Moses that he is a perfect savior And if we hold to that hope, then we have this great confidence, and we are God's house. That's the context that our text today has in mind. So in verse 7, with that in mind, the apostle Paul then gives an extensive quotation of Scripture. He's quoting from Psalm chapter 95. This is a long quotation of scripture. A lot of times whenever we read the New Testament we see little snippets of scripture quoted. But this is a long quotation and it's the second longest quotation uh, of scripture in the Bible. The only other that is longer occurs later in Hebrews. So we have a quotation from scripture and we see something here that's theologically important. Right? He's quoting Psalm 95. But what does he say? He doesn't say Psalm 95 says. He says, the Holy Spirit says. There's a brief aside, but whenever we read the Bible, any text of Scripture, the Holy Spirit has said that. It is the Word of God. Whenever we say that this is the Word of God, that's what we mean. That God has spoken, the Holy Spirit inspired it. Now we also know from later in our text, today from Chapter 4, verse 7 That Psalm 95, while it was spoken by the Holy Spirit, it was written by David. Now, who was David? David was the king of Israel, he was the king after Saul. God anointed David, and God set up an everlasting kingdom through David. Now, David would have been writing this long after the event that he's going to reference. Some 300 years. That would be like us today talking about the Revolutionary War. But the Revolutionary War was only about 250 years ago or or a little less. So David is using something from earlier in Scripture to give a warning to the people in his time. And how do we know that? The first word of that passage. From Psalm 95, verse 7, it says, Today, today. That's a warning that right now, whatever David wrote today years ago, he was talking about a specific day, a specific time, and when we read today, what does that mean? It means August 7th, 2022, today, right now. So David writes this psalm and he says, today, if you hear his voice, that's God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test. Now, what is David referring to here? In Psalm 95, the actual text of Psalm 95, that Paul uses a slightly different wording here, in Psalm 95, it says, do not harden your hearts as in the uh, day of rebellion at Massa and Meribah. Now, Massa and Meribah, If you turn to Exodus, turn to Exodus chapter 17. I went too far. I went to Genesis. Exodus chapter 17. We're told of this story of Masa and Meribah. Now, who is the main character in the book of Exodus? Moses. Who did we talk about last week? Moses. So we've just heard about Moses, and now we're going to be given a story from Moses, something from his life, something from the story of Moses bringing the people out of Egypt. So in Exodus 17, Moses has delivered the people from Egypt. They have been brought through the Red Sea. They have seen the miraculous signs and wonders, and they are in the wilderness. And in Exodus chapter 16, the people were t- came to Moses and they said, Moses, you brought us out into the desert. What are we going to eat we're hungry. And what does God do? God provides them with manna. Not only had God delivered them from slavery, he then provides for their physical needs. He feeds them. And just days later, just days later, the people of Israel have the gall to say, Moses, we're thirsty. I have two young children. And if we go on a road trip or if we, you know, we took the train into the city the other night, my goodness, Daddy, I need a snack. Mommy, I'm thirsty. I mean, there's no satisfying them. They're like bottomless pits when it comes to eating snacks on a road trip. And that's how the people of Israel were. They weren't satisfied. They said, Moses, you brought us out here to die. Exodus 17, verse 2 says, the people quarreled with Moses They quarreled. They argued with him. They fought against him. They quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why are you arguing with me? And then he says, what you're really doing is why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? These people have just been freed from slavery. They have seen God's incredible power and his majesty. And they say, you brought us out here to die. They were rejecting Moses. They were rejecting the Lord. They were testing him. Verse 4, Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Remember, Moses was a savior Moses had demonstrated God's power, and they were ready to kill him. They were ready to reject him, though they had seen what Moses had done by God's hand. And the Lord said, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people shall drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. What did God do? God provided for their needs. God was going to provide for their needs. He had up to that point. God would not bring them into the desert so that they might die. God would sustain them. But they tested him. They rejected Moses. They rejected God. They rejected the Savior. And Moses called the name of that place Masa, meaning testing. God, what are you going to do for me? And Meribah, quarreling, arguing with Moses, arguing with God. Because the people of Israel tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? When David wrote this psalm for the people of Israel, he had this in mind. He said, People of Israel, do not be like your fathers. Do not be like that wilderness generation who weeks earlier had been delivered out of Egypt, who weeks earlier who had seen God literally spread apart a sea, who days earlier had seen God drop bread from heaven. Yet, having seen all of this, having heard God's voice, they tested God. They rebelled against him and they said, God, you brought us out here to die. We don't want you, we don't want your servant anymore this was the heart of the people a hard heart full of rebellion and if you remember from the story of exodus who were the people saved from they were saved from the pharaoh and what does exodus tell us over and over and over again that the pharaoh did he hardened his heart before god Now the Israelites who had seen God's salvation, who had experienced his providence, who God had sustained, they hardened their heart just as the Pharaoh had. This should humble us. Now I oftentimes ask people, if you you had a video camera and could see one event from the Bible, what would it be? And a lot of people will say the parting of the Red Sea. That lot of good it did these Israelites. They saw it. They were there and their hearts were hardened. It wasn't just this event though. It says that your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years. They always go astray in their hearts. This group of people, it's not like they were at Massa and Meribah, they drank the water there and then they said, okay God, we're convinced, you got us, we're trusting you. Later in Exodus, we see that Moses is up on the mountain for what seems like ages, it's really a few days, they said Moses must have left us, he doesn't care for us, God doesn't care for us, you know what we want, we don't want that God, the God that freed us from slavery, that brought us through the Red Sea, we want a golden calf. And they hardened their hearts. They became a stiff-necked people. Later, Moses brings them to the edge of the promised land, the edge of the place that God said he was going to give them, where they would enter God's rest, where they would have fields of plenty, and everything would be theirs, and they saw giants. And 10 of the spies said, these giants are really big. It would, better, it would honestly be better for us if we just died. That was their response. They did not trust God to give them victory over the people in the land, as God had given them victory over people already. They had rejected God. Their hearts constantly went astray. Their hearts were hardened. And as verse 11 says, "As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter what? My rest." Now, in the context, what was he saying? They will not enter the promised land. That generation who rebelled against God time and time again, whose hearts continuously went astray, who rejected God at Masa and Meribah, who rejected God with the creation and the making of the golden calf, who rejected God by not going into the promised land, what did they do? They went into the wilderness. They didn't go into the promised land. To enter into the promised land would have been to enter into God's rest. And God said, you shall not enter. Enter my rest. We see that in Numbers chapter 14. And only two people, only two people enter God's rest from that generation. Remember who they were? Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb were among the spies who went into the land. They were two of the twelve. And where 10 said, I don't trust God to, to give us deliverance here. What did they say? God will give us the land. God will do this for us. They trusted God, and they entered God's rest. But those who hardened their hearts in rebellion did not. This is the event that David has in mind when he tells the people of Israel, don't harden your hearts. Don't be like that generation. Right Typology, you have this generation that did this. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Now, whenever David wrote this, he was writing to the people of Israel. Paul now takes this and he seeks to apply it to the life of the church. Those who are not ethnically Israelites, but those who are in Christ. Look in verse 12, he says, Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away or go astray from the living God. So Paul then takes this passage from Psalm 95 that's talking about a generation 300 years prior to them and he says, hey guys, take care not to be like that wilderness generation. Take care not to be like that there is not an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This word for take care, <clears throat> I don't know if you guys are like me in this, but whenever I go grocery shopping and I buy eggs, I am so nervous. It's like I put the eggs in their own bag, I set them up against the side of my car, and I like put things around it. I, I, I want to take care. I'm really careful that these eggs don't fall because I don't want eggs to you know, get all over my car, and eggs have gotten expensive. It's like I don't want to waste a single egg. I take care with the eggs. I, 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 I exercise caution, and that's what Paul is telling us here. He's saying, exercise extreme caution. Watch out. Put up the padding. Think about what you're doing, because you don't want there to be among any of you who have trusted in Christ an evil and unbelieving heart. Because if you have an evil and unbelieving heart, guess what? You will fall away from the living God. Then he gives us this, exhort one another. Exhort is a, is a, a beautiful word. That means to encourage and build one another up. He says, build one another up every day as long as it is called today. Okay, what word did our passage start with? Today, if you hear his voice. So he's telling them to encourage one another today, 2,000 years ago. But what is today, today? August 7th, 2022, today. Exhort and encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's telling the Christians in this context, these Hebrew Christians, watch out sin will deceive you sin will take you and it will twist you and it will warp you and it will make you callous so that you will become like that wilderness generation yes you've heard the gospel yes you know that christ is the true and the better moses but watch out because your heart can go astray you will fall away from the living god through the deceitfulness of sin And he gives us here in verse 14 what is an incredible promise, but it also is a stern warning, something that we should think of very carefully. For we share in Christ if, there's an if, there's a condition here. We share in Christ, we are built into that house that he talks about earlier in the chapter. We are built into that house if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Not if we hold our original confidence halfway through. Not if we hold our original confidence until it gets really, really tough. Not if we hold our original confidence until we've kind of made it and we've, you know, we have all the, the titles and then we can give up and, and not hold firm. No. No. We share in Christ if we hold to the end, period. And then he repeats the same phrase again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Church, today, right now. If you hear God's voice, if you are hearing God's word preached, if you have heard the gospel, if you have believed the gospel, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion. Hold fast to your confession till the end. Hold fast your confession till the end. It is not enough for you to say, well, you know what? I was a Christian for 23 years earlier in my life. I'm okay now. Hold firm to the end, he says. verse 16 through 19, he spells out what we have just looked at a little bit deeper. For who was it that heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And with whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient? <clears throat> he is again, He's explaining who this people was. Who is it that God swore they will not enter his rest. Who was it that hardened their hearts in rebellion? It was the people of Israel. It was the Hebrew nation that was brought out of slavery. It was the Hebrew nation that had seen God's signs and powers and wonders, and yet, having seen all of that, turned aside from him. That's who he's talking about, and he's saying, you can be like them, and watch out, because it's easy to be like them. And in verse 19, he says this, they were unable to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. Now earlier, he says that they were led away by the deceitfulness of sin and now we see that they weren't able to enter because of unbelief. <clears throat> and what we really need to understand is that those two things go hand in hand. <clears throat> Whenever the people quarreled and grumbled and tested the Lord they were sinning against him but why were they sinning against him because of their unbelief they did not trust God they did not trust his promises whenever the people at Mount Sinai created the golden calf and they worshiped an idol which they ought not to have done why did they do that because they did not trust in God They could not see him and they said, he must not be here. Why did the people not obey? Why were they disobedient to not enter the land? It's because they did not trust that God would give them the victory. They had unbelieving hearts. Paul is warning us here today that sinful and unbelieving hearts will keep you from entering God's rest. But he's not saying that sinful unbelieving hearts are just something to look out for if you're out there. Sinful unbelieving hearts aren't just something to watch out for if you're not a member of a church. Sinful unbelieving hearts aren't just something you need to watch out for if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer. Sinful unbelieving hearts are something that we must watch out for, we must take care for, we must exercise extreme caution even now in the church Because he continues on in verse four. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us, that is New Testament Christians, that is those who have seen Christ, that is those who have heard the gospel, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Failed to reach that rest. What is he saying? Watch out, because the promise of entering that rest it's still yet future. It's to the end that you must hold firm. Then he says, For good news came to us just as to them. So the gospel was preached to the people in Exodus. Whenever they walked through the Red Sea, whenever they were covered by the blood of the Lamb, whenever God provided for their needs, the good news came to them just as it did to us. They heard the message of the gospel. They heard God's plan. God, they heard God's promise. But then he says the message they heard did not benefit them. It was no good. It was no good. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Maybe you've heard the gospel preached a thousand times. Easily happen. Maybe you have been in a church where you have seen sound and solid gospel ministry for years or decades. But having heard the good news, being in a church, being a member at a church, none of these things will benefit you unless you you are united by faith to that message. Consider what Paul is saying here. Simply going through the Red Sea Simply having the blood of the Lamb cover you, simply seeing the works of God did not benefit the people of Israel unless they were united by faith. Church, we need to hear the same thing today. There is no benefit for us in being a member of a church. There is no benefit for us in having parents that are believers and having siblings that are believers and having children that are believers if we ourselves are not united by faith to the gospel or to Christ in the gospel. Verses 3 through 6 he then explains more what this rest is. This is important because he says, for we who have believed enter that rest. And throughout scripture, we see that those who believe are united to Christ in faith, that they have all the benefits of the gospel. So what is the gospel or what is this rest that we are called to enter? It is all the benefits of the gospel. It's what Paul tells us in Romans, we are we are united to Christ by faith and that by faith we are saved. When he says that we who have believed into that rest, he's talking about the benefits of the gospel, forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit's presence in our life, the promise of life everlasting. All of this is ours. This is the rest that we will have in Christ. So the rest is what God has done for us in Christ. But what is the wrath of God? Well, the wrath is that we shall not enter that rest. Rather than everlasting peace, joy, fulfillment, forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ, not entering that rest is the opposite. It's eternal damnation. To not enter that rest is to continually strive, to continually seek our hope and our joy and fulfillment. Imagine that. Imagine how you feel on like a hot night like last night when you're lying in bed and like you feel a sweat drip dropped on your back and you like turn because you can't find that comfortable spot because it's so hot. You're like, I just want to go to sleep and you can't sleep and you toss and you turn. Imagine doing that forever and ever and ever and Ever. That is the wrath of God. Eternity without joy. Forget the 80, 90 years that we will spend on this earth joyless. All of eternity, seeking for joy and not being able to find it. All of eternity, tossing and turning, saying, I want fulfillment, I want fulfillment, and being unable to find it because we are away from God. That is the wrath of God for those who harden their hearts and do not enter his rest. He then describes this rest in verse 4 and talks about God resting from his work in creation. He says somewhere, uh, for he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day that God rested from all his works. So he's talking about Genesis. And what happened in Genesis? God created for, seven, or for six days. He created all things. And about all things, he said, it is good, it is full, it is complete, and God rested. He said, there's nothing else that needs to be done. It is finished. It is finished. And it's that paradigm that we see for rest here. God has finished the work. God has done it. There's nothing else that needs to be added, and that's the rest that you enter if you believe, and it's the rest that you will never have if you don't believe. The rest that God takes in creation. But this rest goes deeper. It's more than that. Look in verse 8 of chapter 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Think back to the life of Joshua. Okay? Moses did not bring the people into the promised land. Joshua brought them into the promised land. Joshua led them, and their first victory was at Jericho. They had a later setback at Ai. But Joshua led the people of Israel by the power of God into the promised land. And what we see in the book of Joshua is it says that the promised land was theirs. The promise that God had given that they would have the land, Joshua tells us, was fulfilled. They entered God's rest. They entered the land flowing with milk and honey. They achieved what God had said, and God had given them that abundance. But here he says that Joshua did not give them that rest of the seventh day of creation. Joshua did not give them that rest because if he had, David wouldn't have had to speak about it later on. If the rest that God was going to give them was just the promise of the land, then there would not have been need to speak of another rest. Yet David says, today, if you hear his voice. And today we say, today, if you hear his voice. What does this mean? It means that there was something greater for the people to enter. There was a better rest for the people to enter than simply living in the land. And in verse 9 and 10, he says this. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This is the invitation of the gospel. We no longer have to strive. We no longer have to work to please God. We we never did. Because the promise of the gospel is that God has done the work for us in Christ. And when Christ said it is finished on the cross, he meant it. And now he says, come, rest in what I have done. Come and rest in what I have done. As a father, there's no feeling. There's no feeling. Like whenever I pick up one of my tired children as we're walking through the zoo or walking downtown and I pick them up after they've been walking all day and their little legs are tired and I pick them up and I'm carrying them to the car or to the train or wherever and they lay their head and they fall asleep because their work is done they can trust that I will take them to where they need to go as their father Church, this is the rest that God offers us. As Christ stretched out his arms on the cross, he says, come to me, and he wraps us up in those arms, and we rest our head on him, and he will carry us till the end, and we rest there. We need not do anything else. This is true rest. This is something mattress stores can never offer you. Christ says, that guilt that you have, I will take it away. You need not struggle with it anymore. That pain and hurt from broken relationships, that pain and hurt from abuse, or whatever it is, Christ says, come to me and find joy in me. And he wraps us in his arms and he gives us this rest. This is the rest that remains for us, people of God, to enter in. That God has done the work of the gospel for us. Christ has saved us. Christ has completed the work and come and rest in that. Verse 11 says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Not the rest of the promised land, not the rest of a land flowing with milk and honey. We can go to the grocery store to get that. The rest that comes from a Savior who holds us in his arms and carries us to the end. He says, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We have this great promise of rest, church, that Christ has completed the work, but we must also heed this great warning. Today, if you hear God's voice through the preaching of the word, through the reading of scripture, if you hear God's voice in the gospel, if you hear God's voice in the invitation to come to him, you who are weary, then do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Perhaps you've heard it said, this doctrine, once saved, always saved. Maybe you've heard it said, perseverance of the saints. And that is true. It is true that those whom God saves, he saves to the fullest. There is no sin that you can commit that will make you outside of God's grace and God's mercy. You can't do something today that is bad enough for God to say, well, you know what, I saved them. But you know what? They're pretty bad. It's impossible. The work of Christ on the cross is finished. But we need to be very careful whenever we understand that doctrine. Because when we say that we are once saved, always saved, whenever we say that once we are in the grace of God, we will persevere in that grace until the end, we need to understand. We need to understand that we must hold firm in our faith to the end. There was no raising of hands at a Bible camp. There was no walking down an aisle. There was no saying a certain prayer that will save you. There is no, my parents are Christians and they went to church for years. There is no, I was on the roll at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church that will save you. If you want to enter this rest, Today, put your faith in Christ. Today, hold firm in that faith. Today, repent, reject your sin, and run after Christ. Today, call out to Him in faith. If our faith is not firmly fixed on Christ, that doesn't mean it's perfect. Nobody's faith is perfect. Our faith will sometimes seem weak and frail, and often it is. But our faith must be in Christ. Our faith must be in Christ. Consider these few things then. One, beware of the deceptiveness of sin. Paul here says, watch out for the deceitfulness by being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I don't know how many of you have ever tried to play a guitar, but if you've never played a guitar before and you were to come up here and play this, you probably couldn't play even one song all the way through. Because the guitar strings are they're, they're pieces of steel and then they take bronze and they wind it around it really tight and it hurts. As you push down those strings, you're literally pushing your fingers to like small, sharp pieces of metal. And as you begin to play the guitar that first time, you're like, man, this hurts. What am I doing? This hurts. But over time, your fingers are like, you know what, I don't want that to hurt anymore. So they start to build calluses. So then you can pick up that guitar and you can play until the cows come home and you're not going to feel a thing. That's what sin does to our hearts. You might think, it's just a little gossip. What does it matter? It's just a little bit of backbiting. I'm not saying it to their face. Well, Okay, I said it to their face, but you know I could have said it much worse. I didn't use any swear words. Okay, I, I, I used swear words, but I didn't use physical violence or murder anyone. That sin will deceive you. It's just a little bit of pornography. It's not that big a deal. Well, you know, if I, if I just, you know, maybe look at, at, at engaging in this relationship, in this adulterous relationship, I'm not actually doing anything. Okay, well, I, I, I didn't meet up with that person. Sin will deceive you. And it will harden your heart. John Owen, in his famous book, Mortification of Sin, he says that sin is hungry and thirsty as the grave. And there is no gossip that does not want to become full out anger and hatred towards a person. There is no lust that does not want to become adultery. There is no unbelief that does not want to become atheism. Sin wants to control and deceive you. In church, it will. So that means... Exhort one another, as long as it's called today. We should be encouraging one another in our struggle against sin. We should be speaking to one another about the sins that we struggle with and how we might encourage one another in our struggle against sin. Second thing, take care, watch out for an unbelieving heart. Your unbelieving heart might manifest itself in any number of ways. It could manifest itself through those sins, like gossip, like pornography, like lust, like greed and anger and malice. But perhaps it's more subtle. Perhaps the unbelief is manifesting itself in not gathering with the believers. The reason why I care that you are here every Sunday is because I want you to be reminded of the hope you have in the gospel. I want you here, not so that I can say, you know, I've led in front of this many people today. I don't care about that. What I care about is your heart and your soul. I do not want your heart to become hardened. And the best way for you to do that is to be among believers. The best way to be strengthened against unbelief is to hear the faith and the gospel preached week in, week out, and the message of the gospel and its promises held out to you. The last thing to consider then is this. The promise of entering God's rest still stands today. It is not too late. Perhaps you're here today and you think, I'm too far gone. Perhaps you're here today and and you think, you know, maybe 20 years ago, maybe five years ago, I could have been saved. But now, I'm too far gone. No, Paul offers us the promise of entering his rest still stands for those who believe. If you will cast your faith in Christ, you will find him to be a perfect savior. Your sins will be forgiven. You can rest from all of your strivings and strugglings. You can rest from your guilt and you can lie in the arms of our father in Christ and rest in him. This is the call of the gospel. Let us strive to enter that rest the promise of the mattress stores, better sleep, better rest. I, maybe it's true. We've had the same Ikea mattress for years. And I seem to rest okay on it. But here's a rest that I can promise you. I can promise you that the rest that God offers us in Christ is the most final and full satisfaction you will ever have. But church, do not be deceived. Hold fast in faith. Do not be swayed by sin. Look to Christ. Look to him. Cast your cares upon him and rest in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the hope of the gospel that we have. We thank you for this rest. I pray, God, that you will help us to be a people of firm faith that we will hold to the end. I pray that you will give us a faith that lasts, that we will be a people who are not deceived by sin, that we will be a people that abhor our sin and seek to look to you in all things. Dear Father, we pray that if those are here today who have not heard the call of the gospel, that they might hear it today and that they might come to Christ in faith. We ask all this in his name, amen.